You can't get innovation when people are too afraid to try something new, right? You can't win in the marketplace if you're just repeating what worked for somebody else or what worked yesterday. That's not how things work, especially not today. You have to be able to innovate and try, and that requires a relationship with failure that just isn't the norm in how many companies build and grow teams. You're listening to Oh Shit, I'm the Boss Now with your host, Jackie Koch, the podcast with all the tips and tools to help you succeed when all of a sudden you have the realization that you're the one in charge. Hey, 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 welcome back to the show. I am Jackie and today... We are talking with Natalie Frank all about really her, well, first we talk about her entrepreneurship journey, how she got there, and about a successful exit that she had with the business that she started. It's pretty incredible. So we dig into that. And we also talk about some of the topics in her new book and how fear holds us back and not for the reasons that we think. So we dig into that into the show. So I'm super excited to dig in and talk with her. To get to know Natalie a little bit more, she is an author, a community builder, a neuroscience nerd, and a mama bear for small businesses. As one of the founders of The Rising Tide, the chief evangelist for HoneyBook, and author of Built to Belong, she leads tens of thousands of independent business owners while fostering a spirit of community over competition around the world. And we totally dig into all of this stuff. And I'm super excited to have gotten to know her. And I'm excited for you to get to listen in as well. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to dig in with you today. And I got to say, your background is spot on. We were just talking about it, but I just got to give you another shout out to your background. It's definitely background, Zoom podcast background vibes. Oh my gosh, Jackie, you're so kind. And honestly, I, it's just a miracle that my plants are still alive at this point. Really, that's what we should be celebrating is the plants. But no, I'm so excited to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. So I love a good founder, like entrepreneur story. How did you become an entrepreneur? How did you do this thing? I love hearing the the roads people take to get here. Yeah. So my story is a little bit different, but isn't that kind of the fun part? I thought for the majority of my life that I would have a nice, safe corporate job. That was the plan up until my mom handed me a camera. And when she handed me a camera as a gift in her way of trying to help me come out of my shell and heal from a really difficult teenage season of life right around 17, everything in my world changed. I realized rather quickly that this camera had the ability to get me into the entrepreneurial space. And it was not something that I had ever imagined. I started photographing for friends. And then that very quickly became photographing and getting paid to do it, which evolved into photographing weddings. And so while I was at my undergrad at Penn, I was studying visual studies and the psychology of seeing and simultaneously taking a train every weekend back home from Philly to the Baltimore area to photograph weddings. And I would photograph those weddings all throughout college when the time came, though, at the very end of school to decide whether I was going to get a corporate job or take the leap and become an entrepreneur. Spoiler alert, uh, I leapt and I leapt to the dismay of a ton of people. Everyone who knew me was like, you're doing what? You're taking this Ivy League degree and you are setting it aside. You're going to be an artist? I'm sorry, did I miss something? That was very much what I was met with. And so uh, we could talk about that a little bit later, but it really shaped me and transformed me. And I remember my mom saying, 
Now, if you're going to go be a photographer, you'd be the best photographer you can be. Like you go out there and you do it. Oh, yes. I mean, she was terrified for me too. Don't get me wrong. Like she was saying that, I think after a lot of like internal reflection, probably allowing her prefrontal cortex to minimize some of the initial thoughts that she had, especially knowing how many student loans I had taken out along the way to getting that degree. But nonetheless, she showed up for me and she cheered me on. And so I went, I built that business. I built it to a multi six figure photography business hit every goal that I had set for myself. And in the pursuit of doing that, also found myself to be incredibly lonely. And so where my founder journey takes this very dramatic turn is when I realized that if I was going to continue to be an independent business owner, a founder, do my own thing for the rest of my life and be the boss, then I couldn't do it under the circumstances and in the environment that was normal at the time. We're talking 2013, 2014, which was cutthroat competition, nobody sharing with one another, very little support and resources. Everything was gatekept. If you didn't know someone, you didn't know anything. Like It was very hard to get education and resources and support. And so I co-founded a community called the Rising Tide Society. And it was very simple in its early stages, just creatives getting together for coffee and conversation with this mindset of community over competition. Not to hold on to the founder story any longer than that, but just to say it exploded. And a little spark of loneliness lit and became this roaring fire of people really calling out into the void and saying, I don't want to be alone in doing this anymore. I want to have a community. And we went from one meetup to 12 meetups to 50 meetups to at our peak right before COVID, we had over 400 meetups happening in cities every month around the United States, Canada, and the world. And all of them were filled with these independent business owners who just needed community and were willing to grow it. And Rising Tide took me in a lot of places. HoneyBook acquired Rising Tide. So I joined the HoneyBook team and have been a part of working at HoneyBook now for in the tech space for the past seven, almost eight years. Just a couple of days ago, we shared that Rising Tide is officially a 501c3 nonprofit. HoneyBook actually gave gave Rising Tide back to the leaders and the leaders went ahead and forged it as an official nonprofit, which is just incredible. Truly, like I never hear stories like that. So now that's our story. That's really surreal to me, but it's been a journey. So from photographer to community builder to having no idea what I'm doing and every step along the way. So crazy to go from when you're making the decision to become an entrepreneur, you're not like, okay, someday I'm going to have a company that gets acquired, especially back then, that gets acquired and then becomes a nonprofit, like all things you could have never predicted. That's awesome. I have so many questions about how it became a nonprofit. Is there any other meet, like, I don't want to call it a meetup group because obviously it's more than that, but like, are there other companies that are more community-based that are like that, that are nonprofits or was that the first one? Such a good question. To be honest, I don't know about the landscape. Rising Tide has always been unique in the sense that it is very much, regardless of its format or its infrastructure, a grassroots community at heart. Every meetup is led by a volunteer leader, right? It's not, we don't charge up until this point. And again, that might change with the nonprofit and we're trying to figure out how to fund it, but we've never charged for meetups. Like you can just show up and attend a meetup. And that's always been the offering that we give to the community is to say, no matter who you are, where you come from, or what resources you have access to, we're like we're ensuring that those resources include entrepreneurial education. We're ensuring that you don't have to do this alone. That for us should be the bare minimum. Like if you raise your hand and say, I want to start a business, that should be something you have access to. We've always believed that and fought for that and kept it free. So I don't know. It's a great question. 
we're very early days. I'm on the board of directors as past president. My role is just to support this new group of visionaries as they take Rising Tide forward. So might be a cool conversation to have even like six to yeah. eight to nine, 10 months into the future to totally. see where everything lands. I'm so but. interested. Okay. So then when you got acquired by HoneyBook, did you work full time for HoneyBook? How did, the, what was that like? Yeah. So I went from volunteering full time to run Rising Tide and my photography business taking the back seat and like funding my ability to do that passion of building community to HoneyBook stepping in, acquiring Rising Tide. And then my full time job became growing Rising Tide in the community. And that was a huge transition. It was really exciting in the ways you would expect finally getting this opportunity to go all in on something that you really believe in, like in in the depths of your soul, you believe in this enough that you're willing to do it for free. I always say that. It's like, find something in life that you would do for free and get paid to do it. Like if you can do that, right? Like that is entrepreneurial success at its finest. And especially if you're solving people's problems in the pursuit of that and making the type of legacy impact that we've seen with Rising Tide. So that's the exciting part. But it also very much was hard. I, unlike a lot of folks that go from working for somebody else to working for themselves, I went from working for myself to working for somebody else, right? And entering the equation as an unemployable person. I joked, I told our CEO, I'm like, I am unemployable. Like, I really have no interest in working for a boss or I don't do politics. Even now, that's a huge, anytime we do a performance review, I'm like, I know. I can't do any kind of politics. I am not great at cross-functional communication. I like to just run and ask for forgiveness later. I know my weaknesses, okay? Self-awareness, we've got that in spades, despite all the flaws. I I think the challenges there were figuring out what that new season looked like. And I will say I'm really lucky. HoneyBook was a place that embraced that entrepreneurial side of me. And still, and like I know with your background in understanding HR, it's not always the case. A lot of companies will say, we want go-getters. We want entrepreneurial minds. And they do nothing but stifle that, right? When people come through the door, I've been really fortunate to not have that be my experience. I don't think I would still be working for HoneyBook today, almost eight years later, if it didn't feel like every day, right? I was showing up to do work that I cared about for people that I care about and to have the freedom and autonomy to make mistakes and try new things. And we launched a podcast. I've been able to keep my wings spread, keep learning, keep growing. And I've been really grateful for that. But it's definitely been a lot of excitement in joining a tech company and a lot of challenges as an independent myself, kind of figuring out how I fit in the scope of a larger org. Totally. Did you, have you managed a team before? I know a lot of the leaders were community led, but did you have anyone on your team before you ended up getting acquired? Such a great question. So there were four of us that were co-founders, but other than that, we didn't have anyone below us. We were very just like scrappy doing it all ourselves. And that was a season, let me tell you. That was a season. When we were acquired, we had the resources to slowly start growing our team. And so we started with interns, which was really cool. We launched an internship program, but then that evolved into the need for true full-time support. And we then built that team very slowly over time. It was never a large team. It always stayed pretty small and mighty. But yes, managed a team especially during like the 20, like 17, I think is when we, or 2016, maybe we officially hired Kate Master. She was the first hire. Shout out to you, Kate. But from there, grew that team. And then one of the coolest moments for me was actually like removing myself from the management of the community to step into a new role internally and having built up the infrastructure and the support to do that and to have someone essentially lead that charge forward. So yes, and yes, and it's hard. Well, well, obviously, you knew my next question. 
what toolkit did you lean on to learn how to do it? Like, did you already develop some of the tools that like lended themselves well to leading others? Like, I'm, I'm curious where you found the toolkit for being a first-time boss who's been such a successful business owner. Yeah, to be really honest, I'm not sure that I ever quite figured it out. I'm still not sure that I have it figured out. I'm just being very frank with you. I love that. I, I think nobody does. Yeah, and maybe that's like maybe that's the point, right? Like I have always believed that my role as a leader is to build other leaders. And on my team, when I'm the boss, my job is to basically remove bottlenecks and get other situations out of your way so that you can thrive. When I hire someone, but that's all I really understood. I kind of learned that along the way. I hire people who are better than me, smarter than me, and super powered in areas where I suck, frankly. And that starting there and then enabling those people to actually do what they do best and trusting them, that's really, I think, what led to Rising Tide's ability to sustain for almost a decade. It wasn't on me. It was on the team that we built and on the leaders themselves really being empowered to do just that, lead. I think one of the things I did uncover was the fastest way to kill a community or a local chapter was to be too directive and prescriptive. Like that, the micromanagement in, in terms of if you're talking internally in a company, but even externally, giving people that freedom to do what they do best allows them to stoke the flames of the fire that fuels them what they're passionate about. And also cultivating environments where failure is accepted and often even celebrated. And what I mean by that, and I learned this not from um, a book or even from my own self-discovery, but from our CMO, Dan Biznick, he is phenomenal. He's worked at companies you might have heard of like Google, change.org. Shout out to Dan. Barack Obama follows him on Twitter. Like he's a very brilliant man and I'm really fortunate to be able to work with him. But he does something every week and I write about it in my new book, Gutsy, because I think everyone needs to do this. He calls it the batter's box. His first day in the office, he sits the whole marketing org down. And I will never forget it because we're all sweating, right? Like we're nervous. We're anxious. New boss. We're terrified. We're like, who is this guy? He's a new exec. Please let him like us. And he looks around the table and he's like, how many swings does it take for a major league baseball player to hit a home run? And the room goes silent. You can hear everybody in that space thinking, is this one of those like Harvard Business School interview questions where you're supposed, they, they just want to see how we think and like everyone's crunching the numbers. Someone, of course, is like under the table typing on their phone trying to figure it out. And he, he just laughs and he goes, look, the actual number of swings that it takes is irrelevant. What I need you to know is that for a major league baseball player to even hit the ball, they have to swing a few times and miss. Then for that hit to actually result in a home run, Let's just say it takes a lot of hits. It takes a ton of swings. And at the end of the day, you have to be willing to swing and miss in order to hit the home run. And every week in our marketing meetings, he leads something called the batter's box, where he has us report in on tests for running, things that are failing, things that didn't go well, so that we create this culture of failure. We create this culture of embracing it, not being afraid of it, because you can't get innovation when people are too afraid to try something new, right? You can't win in the marketplace if you're just repeating what worked for somebody else or what worked yesterday. That's not how they, things work, especially not today. We were joking about new, new social media platforms popping up like overnight. You have to be able to innovate and try. And that requires a relationship with failure that just isn't the norm in how many companies build and grow teams. I, I won't ramble further. All of that to say, like those were lessons that I've learned. Those are things that have really shaped my own leadership model and it goes into just building that psychological safety that Google talks about and creating dynamic teams. The more that you can create that, the more you can create environments where your employees are empowered to go do the things that they are best at 
that you remove whatever's holding them back, and that when they fail, you approach it not from a place of shame or ensuring that they never make a mistake again, because they will, we all do, but instead you ask, what can we learn from it, right? Because we're going to make mistakes, but let's just not make the same one twice. And I think that would be my learnings like tied up in a quick little ribbon. I love the batter's box. And I love, I would imagine that you celebrated like people who had the most swings and misses, you probably celebrated those versus like critique them to death. I, I love that you shared that example because I do think what I find and why I started this podcast is that I will go to a lot of entrepreneurship events and they scare the shit out of you that you have to be good at building a team and leading a team. Otherwise, you're going to fail. But then they don't ever teach you practical things to do. You're like, okay, so now what? And that's really like what this podcast is for is just to give you some things to test and try to see what works. So you can actually like learn some of the tactical stuff because I just hear you see it all the time, even in all the books, right? You read books like Traction, you read books, you read lots of books and it's like you understand how important getting the team stuff right is, but you don't actually know where to even start or do. That's been my experience anyways. Long tangent there. Let's talk a little bit more about your book. When did you feel inspired to write a book? I feel like I'm sitting on a book and I need to know when you realize that you should write it. I need you to tell me, walk me through it. Well, the fact that you're even asking me that question means, one, you should write it. For everyone listening to this, please go tell her she should write it. Please write the book. But I, this is my second book. So my first book, Built to Belong, came out in 2021. And it was a book about cultivating community in the midst of a pandemic. Now, it wasn't about the pandemic, but it just so happened that timing aligned for better or for worse. It was quite an experience launching a book on that subject during a pandemic. But with this book, the inspiration from it truly came from the community that we did grow and the fact that the more small business owners that I met day in and day out, the more I started to realize that failure has become the scapegoat for why we don't reach our greatest success. We think that the reason dreams aren't brought to fruition is because somebody failed along the way. But I've actually found that more often than not, people don't even pursue the dream in the first place. They never even take the first step. Rather than asking themselves, what impact could this make? Who could this serve? How could this solve a problem? People ask, well, what would other people think if I left the job? What would other people think if I launched the thing? If I bet on myself, if I took the leap, if I took that diploma and I said, you know what, I'm going to set it aside and I'm going to be a small business owner, what are other people going to have to say? And it was the realization that the fear of other people's opinions kills far more dreams than failure. And no one was talking about it. I felt as though, at least in my bubble, it very much was either how not to become the statistic of the business that fails or just stop caring about what other people think. And frankly, that's terrible advice. You can never stop thinking about the opinions of others because it's hardwired in. It's like telling somebody, never sneeze again. It doesn't work that way. It's an involuntary mechanism hardwired in. I say in the book, it's a feature, not a bug. The human brain cares about the opinions of others because there are consequences to how people perceive you. And to pretend otherwise is simply to deny reality, right? There are consequences. It's why fitting in and using camouflage to not be noticed equals safety. But nobody ever accomplished incredible things or changed the world by staying in that comfort zone, by being silent and staying stuck. So it's a book that I think was placed on my heart after conversation, after conversation, after conversation with really successful people who still were battling with this. 
and the understanding that perhaps this isn't something that ever goes away, but it is something that we need to talk more about and we need to learn how to navigate so that we can keep doing it scared and keep showing up in the world. As you're saying that, I'm like, okay, how does this show up for me? Right. And I would be somebody who would say, I don't care what people think. And I do think there's a degree of that that's true. So as you're saying it, I'm like, okay, I don't care if other people see me fail, like whatever. I don't care about that. I'm almost afraid of what people will think if I'm successful, right? So it's like, it is interesting because when you say that out loud, I'm like, well, I don't really care what people think of me, but I do. It's just not what I think a lot. Maybe it's just like the script is flipped a little bit. Fear of success is the unsexy topic that we don't like to discuss, but is so painful and real for so many people. It shows up and manifests like procrastination, right? It can show up and manifest like maybe even letting go of opportunities you really want just because you understand there's going to be a consequence to taking them. And by the way, we don't actually fear the success. What we fear is the consequences of that success. What does it actually mean when we are successful? Does it mean more eyes, more criticism? Does it mean more responsibilities, more pressure, right? What is it about the success that we struggle with? And I think that we are, like I said, we're so quick to talk about failure. And I love that you're like, I'm not really afraid of people see me fail. That's awesome. Like, that's right. But see, that's, that explains a lot of the entrepreneurial drive within you. And I'm sure that resonates with so many people. But what also is true is that we also see what happens when someone is successful, when suddenly the spotlight is turned their way and it's not always pretty. And I talk about this in the book. I talk about how we're so quick to say, empower other people. I always hear like, women cheer for women, empower other women until one woman is just way too successful. Then what happens? The same groups that are shouting, empower one another, are tearing her down. All because, right, she just became a little bit too successful than is acceptable. Have an opinion, but don't be too loud. Stand up straight. And it's subtle. Like, it's not even intentional. And that's why I'm so interested in your thoughts on this. Obviously, you studied it more than me. But, like, you might think you would never be the person who would cut someone down until all of a sudden you are because your reptilian brain is like, protect me. And then you're like, well, shit, I thought I was never going to be this person. And here I am talking shit about this person for no reason. Like, it's, it's so interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. And there, there are some things that I would love to share on that. So the first is we don't have a choice in oftentimes what happens to us or what's happening in the world, but we do have a choice in how we react to it. Now, that doesn't mean that our first gut instinct is always one that we can nurture and shape, right? So if you see somebody succeeding and your first reaction is to feel jealous or envious or have that kind of gut punch emotion of like, oh, gosh, pause and ask yourself why. Why do you truly have that immediate response? What is it? More often than not, there is some little nugget of something you desire in that you aren't seeing fulfilled in your own life. And feeling a certain way about somebody else isn't going to fix that. We've got to first acknowledge the, the reality of what we want, which by the way is a brave act. I say this in the book. I say there are a couple of things that we don't often acknowledge as brave. One of them is self-acceptance and the other is just admitting what we actually want out of life. Women are, are so quick to dismiss and deny what we actually want. We're trained and taught to do that, whether we realize that or not from a very young age. So what do you actually want? What is it about that image or what that person's doing or what they're accomplishing in life 
that leads to the feelings of jealousy. And focus not on tearing the person down in your own mind, but focus on what steps is it going to take to help you realize that, or even asking yourself the question of whether that's an aspiration that you truly desire in the first place. That's important. But another thing I want to say to this is that we all craft worldviews, and they're built brick by brick on decisions that we make. In the same vein that when you start and do something new, the very people you hope would cheer for you that would be rooting for you at every turn are often the ones that are a little bit quieter and sometimes are the ones that are even dismissive of your dreams. We've all had the friend that's like, oh, how's that little business doing? Or they don't even ask you about it at all. Like it doesn't. Or they don't. (laughs) Or they pretend like it doesn't even exist. And the reason I bring that up is because one of the most dangerous things that someone can do is challenge your worldview. And if you have a friend who has spent their life believing that they have to take the corporate job, that the nine to five is the only path for them, that anything else is too risky, will lead to failure, and just isn't a possibility, the moment that you suddenly step out and do that thing, you are challenging every decision that they have ever made to lead them to that point, and they cannot have that. Because the minute you pull out one brick, what happens to that wall? It begins to crumble. And that is one of the reasons we see so often in the entrepreneurial space that the people who are going to cheer for you the loudest are often the internet friends that you've never even met who are doing the same thing that you're doing because they have embraced those same decisions that you are embracing, taking on the risks and just asking, is it possible for me versus the folks in your life that have maybe told themselves that story all along that it isn't possible for them and seeing you go after it, daring to see you even try to accomplish it is too much. It requires them to look in the mirror. And human beings are mirrors for one another. And so it can be really hard for the people in your life, even those that love you, to celebrate you and celebrate the successes that you have because it does fundamentally challenge the decisions that they themselves have made. And that is a, it's not something we like to talk about, but it is very real and it is very hard to navigate, especially as you grow in business. It is. It really is. And it's hard... It goes back to like they, a lot of times, at least for me, people that I grew up with and, and know from who are not entrepreneurs, I don't think it, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's, no, they don't realize it's happening. And it's like, how do you call someone out on, on it when they don't even know they're doing it? And then, so then you just like distance yourself. I don't, it's just, it's all, it's just a weird thing. Yeah, look, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm really going to hurt my friend. (laughs) That's what I want to do today. I I really want to be a bad friend. I want to show up and make them question their life decisions and position myself as the superior person. Like, no one's waking up to do that. But we are human beings. And you have to remember that when somebody isn't quick to celebrate your success, it says more about them than it does about you. And we have to extend that grace. And we have to just acknowledge that sometimes there are going to be opportunities to really get into the weeds and talk about maybe how something makes you feel or why you'd like a friend to show up more for you. And other times, it's not a season where you can navigate that with somebody or it's not a relationship that's deep enough to go there or it's okay. And I, I talk about this too in Gutsy, like you have permission to curate your inner circle. You have permission to choose the opinions that you allow to influence your own. You don't have to just adhere to recency, consistency, and proximity in terms of like, well, they're near me and they talk a lot, so I've got to listen. You have permission to be intentional with who you're allowing to speak into your life. And that's uncomfortable and it's messy, but it is important. One of the the most famous sayings of all time is like, you become a combination of the five people you spend the most time with. And I would argue that your opinion is shaped by the five opinions that you are surrounded by the most. We like to think 
that we are original in our ideas. We like to think that our opinions are shaped by us and us alone. But science suggests otherwise. Science shows that we are very much influenced by the opinions all around us, that we tend to surround ourselves with people who agree with us. We don't always go out looking for the truth, but we go out looking for evidence that what we already believe to be true is in fact validated by somebody else. It's called confirmation bias. And so you have to be really intentional about what opinions are you allowing into your circle? When you think about it from the leadership perspective in growing a team or growing a business, who are your mentors? Who are you truly going to look to for advice? And we, in the book, I actually walk you through a framework and some of the questions you need to ask are when you're thinking about mentors, you're thinking about opinions to have in your space, you know, are they experts in this arena? We get a lot of advice from people that don't actually know what they're talking about. We live in an era where the beauty is anybody can pick up a megaphone, a microphone, hop onto threads and start sharing with the world. That's great. Yay. But also the downside of that is you have to evaluate who you're trusting as a resource. Do they know where you're going, who you're becoming? Do they have your best interests at heart? These are all questions that need to be taken to an, into account when considering whether an opinion needs to be a part of that totally. inner circle. In Gutsy, do you talk about how that, how to do that with your online circles? Because I do feel like there's like your energy exchange circles that you're with all day long. And then there's like what's on your feed all day long. And those I feel like are probably just as important, if not more important than the people you're actually spending your time with. Yes, we do. We dig into that for sure. Look, the amount of content that we consume as human beings on a day-to-day -day basis, there is no other point in history where we have merely absorbed the opinions of so many people. And you go into any comment thread on any post on any platform, and you are probably observing more thoughts from other people than your ancestors did in an entire month. The human brain, right? Like, it's just, we have to remember that the world's changed a lot in the last 2,000 years, 200 years. Heck, the last two years, the world has changed a lot. The human brain, not so much, right? We're operating on ancient neural hardware. And so we have to give ourselves a little bit of grace and we have to be intentional. Like we talked about what opinions we're allowing in, what content we're consuming. And so, yes, absolutely. We dig into it. We talk about it. And just encouragement to anybody out there, unfollowing someone is okay, like, I don't know if you need to be reminded, if no one's told you lately, but it's okay to unfollow. It's okay to mute an account that is no longer serving you. It is okay, right, to follow a new account that challenges you, that makes you sometimes even feel uncomfortable, that doesn't even agree with everything that you've seen in the past. Like, it's okay to widen your sphere of influence to ensure that when you're crafting that opinion inner circle, you're not just living in an echo chamber. This is all what we talk about in the book, and there's nuance to it, and it's not as easy as like, do this, not that. You have to ask yourself the hard questions, but if you're not asking the questions in the first place, then again, you're staying stagnant and staying stuck, and I don't think that's truly what any of us desires out of this life. Yeah, not at all, not at all. Well, and you can choose not to engage in heated comment debates to make yourself more angry like there's just there's there you have so much more choice i think than i think we're living in a world where people feel like they don't have choices and they're they're forgetting about their personal responsibility for making the choices that serve them um in so many ways and your book will help in that what what are some other any other tips? Obviously, like go, we're listeners. Hopefully, you're going to go get this book and read it. But anything else we haven't covered that is super for an entrepreneur? So, take a, an entrepreneur now, maybe has a team of like three or five people. 
any other advice that they would get that you have in the book that could help them in in embracing that other people's opinions are having an impact on the decisions and, and, and stuff that they're doing? Yeah, I look, here is just some quick, like very specific tactical advice. Everybody has an opinion. You have an option of deciding how that opinion manifests. And so as an entrepreneur, it can be really quick and easy to get dismissive or defensive when somebody has an opinion that you don't like. I would challenge you. I really would. I would challenge you to do your best at times to remove the emotion from the equation and just ask, is there truth that I can take away from this? That's the first thing. The second thing is build systems and infrastructure where people can channel that that type of feedback, where people feel safe to actually vocalize when they don't agree with something or when something isn't going right. Because so often I think we become so afraid of any evidence that we aren't perfect when in reality, nobody is. And there is always an opportunity to foster environments where people are able to give feedback and create a culture of open communication. If you are the one leading that team, you either get you either like take the proactive step of creating a space where that is supported and it could be a survey if it doesn't if you want to keep it allowing people to have that anonymous angle if that's something that you desire great if you want people to put their names to it also great but creating that environment of feedback is really important keeping it open is really important not being defensive is also really critical to that but just know that if you don't create the space they will create it for you well yeah that's such a good reminder like okay if you're listening to the show and you are afraid of what other people think, so is everyone who's working on your team. And guess what? You're the boss. So you inevitably always have more power. You you control whether or not somebody gets paid or not paid. Like you can be the best boss ever, but there's still always that power dynamic. And so I think remembering that is so critical. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. And lead by example. Remember that too. Lead by example. If you want a certain behavior on your team, if you want people to be even just sharing critical feedback at all, you have to be willing to lead by example and be open to that type of feedback. Show them that you're open to that type of feedback. When we talked about batter's box, it could be as simple as on Slack, asking your team, hey, sure, one thing you failed at this month. What's one thing that you failed at this month? I'll go first. We've all heard that on TikTok. It's like, I'll go first. Like, Lead by example and actually institute the very things you want to see as a part of the culture of your company because people do look to you And you taking a step to be vulnerable, especially in that team dynamic, gives other people permission to do the same. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, Natalie, how can people, can they pre-order the book? Is it already available for pre-order? How, where do they go? How do they do it? All the places. So you can go to nataliefrank.com slash gutsy or search for gutsy and my name anywhere the books are sold. We have some awesome pre-order bonuses. So if you do pre-order the book, definitely go to nataliefrank.com slash gutsy so you can get access to that. And just let me know. Like, let me know if you pre-order the book, how you're liking it, anything that that sparks to mind for you or how I can just best support you. I'm all over social, just at Natalie Frank. Come find me and truly just strike up a conversation. I'd love to get to know more about what you're working on and how I can support your business. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so great to talk to you and definitely gave me some reflection. And I'm going to go sign up for these bonuses and get your book. So thank you so much for coming on the show and gifting your time to listeners. Awesome. No, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. All right, listeners, thanks for tuning in and we'll chat with you again really soon. (laughs) 
speaking of the power of people, I'd be honored to read your written review of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard and have suggestions on how to make this show more impactful, please show your support by taking a few minutes to let me know what you think. See you next time.